Thanks for joining us at Keys for SLPs, opening new doors for speech-language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals, patients, and caregivers to discuss therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field as we discuss a variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Each episode of Keys for SLPs has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. We are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Type the word keys for $20 off. With hundreds of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with the code word keys. Visit speechtherapypd.com and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Welcome to this episode of Keys for SLPs, Keys to Treating People with Long COVID. I am Mary Beth Hines. Here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. I am the host of Keys for SLPs and receive compensation from speechtherapypd.com. Renee Garrett is a paid employee of a large health system in the Commonwealth of Virginia. She receives compensation for this presentation from speechtherapypd.com. Her non-financial disclosure is that she is the Communication Disorders Foundation of Virginia secretary. And now we welcome Renee Garrett, CCC SLP, a native of Hampton Roads, Virginia. She earned her BS and MS at Old Dominion University. She has worked in inpatient rehabilitation, outpatient settings, assisted living, acute care hospitals, day rehabilitation, serving teenage, adults, and geriatric patients. Renee is fees trained and privileged. She has a special interest in cognitive retraining post-TBI. She holds certification as a certified brain injury specialist. She has served the Speech-Language Hearing Association of Virginia in the roles of Secretary, Vice President, Public Relations, Vice President of Membership, President-Elect, President, and Past President. She currently serves the Communication Disorders Foundation of Virginia in the role of Secretary. Renee has received the honor of Darden Fellow from Old Dominion University's Darden College of Education and Professional Studies in 2023. She also moderates the adult topics of the SLP Hub for SpeechTherapyPD.com. Renee, thanks for returning to Keys for SLPs. Long COVID is an important topic for us to understand and treat. Yes, it definitely is. Thank you for having me back. I have had quite a few patients on my caseload, and the probably the biggest thing that I'm seeing right now are some people with respiratory symptoms, but then also mostly cognitive impairments. And so one of the most current patients that I have is in her 80s, but prior to having COVID, she was still very independent. I mean, she was retired, but she was active in the community driving, socializing, out and about, doing her daily walks, just not really someone who was limited by her advancing age. But now she's experienced cognitive decline, specifically to memory, but also difficulty doing things like managing medications, managing her finances. She started having quite a few falls at home And she very much presents like someone with an early to sort of mid-range dementia, which is not who she was two years ago prior to her contracting COVID. So that's been a very interesting situation to be in because she's very, I don't want to say put off, but she's very conscious of what's happening. And so it makes her quite a bit nervous that when we do tasks in therapy, she's going to get the answer incorrect. So whenever she meets new people, as far as a therapist goes, because she's someone, so just to give you a little background, I had been in acute care for almost 10 years and I went to outpatient back in mid-September 2022. And so she was someone that was on caseload who was kind of wrapping up her course of therapy and decided that she needed sort of a refresher course with both physical therapy 
due to her falls at home. And then also with speech pathology because of her difficulty completing medication and, and financial tasks. She actually had to enlist some family members to assist with that. You know, and I guess we don't really think of that as, oh, that's not really that big of a deal, but it kind of is when this is someone who is predominantly independent and not really reliant on someone else, has lived alone, never married, never had children. And so she was used to just doing all the things herself. So that was a big change for her. And then again, meeting me and after having a successful run with a different therapist, so we sort of had to take the pressure off and really kind of pull the lens back and do things that weren't so structured and didn't feel like necessarily a therapeutic task, but sort of approaching it in a way that was accessible to her and gave her success to sort of help her build that confidence back and that trust and rapport with me as her therapist. So it's been an interesting journey because I don't think for her, I don't feel like she would have found herself in this same realm had she not contracted COVID. And she was also one of the people that was sort of early on when the diagnosis was they tested her and they weren't sure because the testing wasn't that accurate at the time, but she had every symptom. She definitely had a hospital stay that was pretty lengthy, not intubated or any respiratory support was needed, but just a big change for her, both mentally and physically. So she's someone that sort of sticks out in my mind right now because she's about 18 months to two years post and she's still reliant on other caregivers for those things that we sort of take for granted that we don't need help with preparing meals, getting to the grocery store, just everyday things like that, that, that are difficult now for her. So you said she was completely retired, but completely independent before with no early signs of dementia before. No, no. She was very active. Like I said, doing her walk, going out with her girlfriends for lunch, going shopping all the time going to the grocery store independently, preparing her own meals, keeping track of her appointments. You know, I think we all pretty much these days rely on the calendar just because we're so busy. I mean, if you, you know, are someone who works more than one job or has more than one child or, you know, helps provide some supportive caregiver role for a family member, yeah, we all have a calendar. But she made a point to say, I would glance at my calendar, but I wasn't reliant on it. And so now what we see is she's reliant on it, but then also not necessarily accurate. So, for example, when she has speech and PT, we try to schedule those patients concurrently so that, you know, they're not having a gap in between the two sessions and not having to wait for a long period of time. But say she has me at 1020 a.m., oftentimes she'll show up at 945 or 10 because she gets up, she gets ready. She comes over to therapy. She lives pretty close by and she doesn't really keep track of the appointment time, just the day that she has it. Even though you've trained her with the calendar. Yes, across multiple PTs and two SLPs. Yeah. And she has a paper copy. She keeps one in her purse and she keeps one on her refrigerator. And it's still difficult for her to follow along with that. She just gets up and she knows she's got to do it. So she gets after it despite the early. And she's not one of those people who just really likes to be early. No, I don't think so. Cause it's, it's been pretty consistent that some days it's 10 minutes, some days it's 30, some days it's 45. Oh yeah. That's, that's really early. <laughs> Even yeah. for those people. <laughs> I'm usually a 10 minute early. I'm not a 45 minute early. <laughs> I'm traveling out of the area. Yeah. Exactly. So when you ask her about that, you know, you arrived 45 minutes early today. Can you tell me about that? What What does she say? I knew I had an appointment today, so I just showed up. I didn't want to be late. That's always the answer. So right, like I said, right now, it almost looks and appears as if she has morphed into this sort of early dementia-esque kind of behavior, but with that sort of a what came first, the chicken or the egg, right? Is it because she had COVID or is it because maybe she was going to be moving on the, the train of dementia anyway, but it really doesn't appear that way based on her behavior pr immediately prior to, because there weren't those atypical things that 
people that kind of are like, for example, my mother-in-law, the, the atypical things that she did prior to her diagnosis, like leaving the house with the sink running upstairs or running into a car, hearing something, but not knowing what it was. So just, she just kept going or moving her groceries to a location in the grocery store. So after she paid, so she could go to the ATM and then not being able to locate them. So she called the police, stuff, stuff like that. It's not typical. That was not things that this lady was doing. She was going to the grocery store and doing her thing and coming home and being organized. And she actually made her list for per her family as well. She made her list according to what she planned to prepare for the week. So that's not even behavior sometimes typical for the average person. You right. Go and hope for the best, right? So would you say, in, I know every case is different, but in the courses of long COVID that you've seen, have you seen a, so they have COVID, there's a decline in mental status and functional skills. And does that kind of plateau that decline or do you see a gradual continuous decline? I mean, the the ones that I've seen, it is sort of a plateau and then they sort of stay kind of status quo. They don't really decline, but they also don't really ever get back to where they were prior to. Another case that I talked about during the webinar that I did, she still has a lot of trouble with stamina, not just physical stamina, but mental stamina for her job. It's difficult for her to stay on task, change tasks, you know, be flexible kind of mid-task and, and change what she's doing. She's a much younger person than my patient that's in her 80s. She's late. Well, she's about to turn 60. So still a significant age difference where you wouldn't expect her to have cognitive decline, but she's really not been able to bounce back fully from where she was immediately after COVID. She's better, but she's not where she was prior to. And are they finding, or are you in your experience, have you found anything about the actual COVID virus, you know, the time where, where they're in, infected that is similar with the people who get long COVID? I'm sure they're studying it, but it, has anything been found that has shown predictors of getting long COVID? Not that I've seen. The, the biggest thing as far as timeline goes is the expectation is four to 12 weeks is the typical anticipated full recovery period from time of onset four weeks being the general guideline from the CDC. And that's inclusive of people who are asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic. So of course that's different from people who are, you know, very, very sick, wind up intubated in ICU and maybe have some hypoxic or anoxic brain events surrounding their respiratory status. But, you know, for this intent, what I looked at was more people who were asymptomatic or mild to moderately symptomatic, didn't require a hospital stay. Like even for myself, I had, this is still cracks me up. I worked in acute care throughout the pandemic. I was in the whole depths and trenches of the whole thing for the whole three years. And so when I left, I never got sick. I was exposed multiple times. I never got sick. So I'm very thankful for that. But when I left and went to my outpatient job in September, in late October, someone at my husband's work, they weren't masking anymore. And I wound up with COVID and I wound up sick. <laughs> it was not fun. 10 out of 10, don't recommend it. But what I found was even for me, Afterwards, probably still well into December and into January, there were periods of time if I was stressed or like working on too many projects at one time, had a full caseload, just anything that was going on. My mother-in-law's had a few hospitalizations since Thanksgiving. So, you know, any of those life stressors, just being fatigued in general was really exacerbated. And I feel like a lot of that was probably late effects for me because I've been able to, I don't really get sick very often. And I've had two pretty big, intense upper respiratory infections since I had COVID, which again is not me. I don't, I worked in acute care. I don't know, get sick. <laughs> like I'm immune to whatever. <laughs> so it's been a really interesting transition 
because when I was doing the research for this, I thought, oh gosh, do I have this too? But yeah, the cognitive stuff for me, it wasn't that I couldn't do it. It was just more like effortful. There were some things like at work, I found myself that would be more of a automatic task, if you will, that I was like, wait a second, I got to, I got to think this through for a second. Like the way I wanted to word something in documentation for a medically complex patient or trying to sort of figure out, okay, how do I want to write this goal specific? I mean, I've been doing this long enough. A goal should pop out like nobody's business. So, you know, I haven't been diagnosed with that, but I can certainly relate to those things and see how the fatigue and the sort of cognitive fog, I can see that in myself. So it's it's not surprising to me that someone who maybe is older or like the lady who's about to turn 60 had longstanding asthma. So she had respiratory issues her entire life and had had a pretty significant bout of bronchitis immediately prior to contracting COVID. So it's it's very interesting. That's interesting that you say that do you feel relieved of that brain fog? So you, you had it in September. You were talking about the October. Yeah. Uh, October. Okay. You left in September. You got it in October. Then that brain fog was late December, the beginning of the year. Do you feel like you're past that now? I do. I mean, I definitely notice fatigue. I fatigue easier just physically, but it's not anything that is impactful for my daily life. It's more like I have to make sure, and I'm, I'm a pretty good sleeper. I'm, I'm very lucky in that regard, but there's sometimes like when I got back from the state conference on Saturday, I mean, we were busy, yeah, but I was pretty wiped when I got back. So Saturday night, I slept like nine hours and I felt good yesterday. <laughs> so, I don't know. That could have been all of the above. So it's, and, and I think that's why the research that's forthcoming is going to be so important because is it a natural component of aging? Is it a natural component of life stress? Is it a natural component of going to something like a conference where, I, like for me, I have other responsibilities other than just. I didn't present this year. I was just an attendee, but I was working on all these other side things. So was it, I was tired because of that. I was tired because I'd just gotten over having a pretty nasty cold. Right. Well, the interesting with this research, if there's, you know, short-term COVID, long-term COVID, and then if there's something in the middle, like a midterm COVID or a, you know, extended COVID, that's not really long COVID, but just extended symptoms. Okay. I was able to get our chat up. Okay. I have had several long COVID patients with these exact symptoms. I see mostly short-term memory and complex organization issues. Medication management is rough, especially if the patient is on multiple medications at different times of the day. Exactly. Yes. And like I said, this, this particular lady that's in her early eighties, I mean, she doesn't have children. She has family in the area, but she doesn't have biological children. She was never married. Her parents obviously are deceased, her brothers and sisters. She's one of, I think, nine. She has a couple of siblings still living, but she's the youngest. And so for her, it was such a big change and her awareness was so high that it did cause a lot of anxiety for her and just a lot of fear of she was going to get the answer incorrect. And so having to be reliant on someone for help with her medications. She's not on a lot of medications, but yeah, it's exactly, that's exactly it. Like having to take medications at different times of the day. So we worked a lot on strategies, you know, and I think that's, that's across the board for our patients who have any kind of cognitive deficit. You know, we have to sort of navigate, how do we do this differently? Using a pill box is not a bad thing. Do you need a reminder in your phone? Do you need to invest in the pill dispenser that the hospital can help you set up that has an alarm and just pulls it out itself. So it's just kind of layered for what the patient needs. Excellent. Okay. So we've talked a little bit about the time frame. Any other comorbidities or exacerbation of the disease process you think we should mention? I mean, I think anybody who was a person who had any kind of cardiac disease any kind of respiratory, you know, whether it's COPD, just childhood asthma, longstanding asthma. I had someone in the hospital in acute care who had asbestosis exposure, and that was someone who actually did not survive. 
just because they already had a super compromised respiratory system. They were geriatric and it just was too much for that particular patient. And it took a long time. And I think that was really difficult for the family because it was so hard at many stages, but especially the very early parts in 2020, sort of March to probably that summer, because the patients would tend to rally the first 10 days. And then around day 10 to 15, really just like it was the sort of breaking point of the decline and and seeing those patients just not really be able to bounce back from that. Okay, we have another question here. Are the mechanisms known causing the long COVID cognitive and stamina challenges, such as the genetic level, the virus damaging neuron and or support structures, oxygen deficits, et cetera? So a lot of the research that we've seen has come out of Europe, Southeast Asia. So I'm hopeful that the American studies will spend Canadian studies will start to come a little bit more prevalent for us so that we can see the answers to those questions. Because I think if we think about it intuitively, anything that deals with respiratory system, of course, we're going to see some hypoxic or anoxic events. Genetically, if there is something out there that's been identified, I haven't seen it. If you have, I would love for someone to share that because I think that would be very profound. I just think the next six months to a year research-wise for what we're going to see across the board will be pretty phenomenal because, you know, a lot of the studies have focused on long COVID and sort of like in a box of symptoms and in the manner that they're talking about how these people's lives have been impacted long-term, but they're not really identifying what the cause is because that seems to be unknown at this point, especially based on the fact that some people were asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic, and they're still having far more symptoms long-term than some of our patients who are more severely impacted and medically challenged. So there's not been a real pattern identified, which is kind of crazy. It is crazy. And you also have to wonder about the reporting of long COVID symptoms. Do you feel that long COVID we know the numbers, like, is it being accurately reported or are some people having COVID and then just kind of having this lingering fog that they might not even get medical attention for, might not even report it to their doctors? Right. Because a lot of the testing initially wasn't accurate. And so we were getting patients in the hospital that were super sick that we hundred percent knew they had it. They were tested negative. And then you got patients who were mildly symptomatic who really didn't even need a full-on hospital stay. They went to the emergency room, got tested, and were positive. So the, the testing at the beginning was so inaccurate and so inconsistent, I think it was really difficult to get accurate numbers. And even now, I know that like my husband has a coworker right now who's out for the week. He just tested positive. And he's like, I thought I had like a sinus infection. He was like, I don't feel bad. I'm just out with stuffy, man. We're in Virginia. Our pollen count's been over 10 for the last week. So everything is green here. (laughs) And there has been some COVID fatigue, right? Mm -hmm. That seems to be prevalent in the general population. Okay. This is a question from one of our participants and I'm glad that she asked it because when you made the comment, I thought the same thing. Is asbestosis related to exposure to asbestos or did I spell it wrong? No, so asbestosis is definitely related to exposure to asbestos, but what it is is an illness. So you've been exposed, but now you have a chronic lung condition that's causing damage to your lungs. So that's what asbestosis is. So I'll give you an example If you've ever watched any of my webinars or know me personally, I'll talk a lot about my dad. So my dad had a stroke many years ago, but my dad was a nuclear pipe fitter in the shipyard, the local shipyard here. And he had exposure from late 60s until probably, gosh, probably when he was medically retired in the 90s to asbestos in the pipes and in the structures of the aircraft carriers and other various ships that he worked on. So he had asbestosis and he wasn't sick from it, but it certainly didn't help in the scope of him having cancer and having a stroke. So 
usually what happens is if you're familiar with prostate cancer, a lot of men will have prostate cancer for a long time. And it's not always almost unlikely to be the cause of death, but can be a like my dad still had prostate cancer when he passed away, but he passed away from complications from his stroke. And a side caveat, he had asbestosis and prostate cancer, but they contributed to the severity of everything else he had medically going on, but they weren't the cause of his death. So hopefully that answers your question. Okay. So the asbestosis contributes to the symptoms of COVID and long COVID in the same way. Well, no, it contributes to the the impact it can have on your respiratory system. Because we don't know what is contributing to long COVID at this point. Of course, we would, again, intuitively think if you've got multiple comorbidities that, of course, you're going to be the sickest of the sick. And I think that was pretty accurate. But then we had some patients that had multiple comorbidities and they just sort of had mild symptoms. I have a patient right now who's had it four times and he's fine. No long-term COVID. No, that's not why he's seeing me at all. So we know that we don't know, it sounds like. Yeah, I think that's why those longitudinal studies from the CDC and some other organizations will be really important because they're asking for people who have those long COVID symptoms to volunteer so that they can be a part of the research. And again, you know, like with COVID fatigue, I think that a lot of people had a bad taste in their mouth for CDC because of the inconsistent reporting and, and whether that was media, whether that was CDC, whether that was both. I don't want to politically or, or media bash or spin anything, but it's really important to understand that if the research is being conducted through a funded study that's a valid study, it may be worth if you know a patient or you are yourself or a family member having those challenges, it may be important for you to be a part of that research so that they can give more information, not only for the general public, but for us as treating clinicians, because it is helpful to see what we're, what we're looking at. What is the expectation? Are we anticipating that these patients can make a semi to full recovery? All right. And here's another interesting comment from one of our participants. And as Renee alluded to, it's hard to distinguish between the onset of dementia because it presents similar. I wonder if there's actual recovery in the geriatric population with COVID cognitive deficits or if it actually does bring on early dementia. So in other words, like the patient who you see who is completely independent does she have long COVID or did it trigger dementia? Research, that's where the research is needed to see if there is, you know, statistically significant amount of people in that same age range and that same sort of experience. That would be great to know. I guess the difference, it seems, with dementia that you're seeing, you're not really seeing that plateau in the same way. It's more of a gradual decline. As with long COVID, there seems to be a plateau in the cognitive deficits. Okay. Well, let's talk about the short-term and long-term caregiver impact because that's a really interesting point to discuss. Yeah. And, you know, when we're thinking about long-term and short-term caregiving, we're looking at a lot of the, the things that we look at are based on patients with dementia, based on patients with stroke, but long-term refers to greater than one year. Short-term, you know, is that maybe someone had a stroke or they had a hospitalization and it wasn't a long-term hospitalization, but maybe they required some care when they went home outside of the normal realm, like getting help with bathing, dressing, and that sort of thing. So the difference is short-term, you know, of course, being short-term and then long-term being over one year. And again, anytime you're a caregiver, and I've seen a a lot of variety throughout my career of people who are willing to take that role on, and then people who were able to say, you know, I don't know if I can do this. I still have to work. And there's there's no shame in any of that. But I think what we need to be looking at in order to provide the best support is the mental, physical health of the caregiver. 
obviously, if we've got someone who's had physical or health deficits themselves, it's going to be a little bit more of a challenge. But caregiving is very stressful. I know for our family, my mother-in-law has Alzheimer's and it's stressful for everybody because at any one given point, most of us have stepped in and whether it's a big role or a small role, any role, just depending on what else you have going on is is a challenge. And, you know, it can lead to some mental anguish or anxiety. It can lead to depression, just general stress associated with that. And then looking at the long-term caregivers, you know, they get to the point where, and I see this with my father-in-law, it's really awful. He's just very angry. And that's not, he. This, he's not dealing with long COVID. He's dealing with dementia, but it's the same thing across the board. And what we see with caregivers is that long-term caregiving does impact mental health. It can actually make people even withdrawn and apathetic once they get past the point where they're having depressive symptoms and maybe they aren't seeking care or treatment or support for that. And then same thing with the physical health. You know, anytime you're, even if you're just a, you're a new parent or a parent who's had a kid that's sick, a long-term illness for a child or, or a chronic condition, you know, broken sleep is not a fun thing. It's difficult to kind of get back from that. And it can cause some issues with your sleep long-term. Fatigue, too. You get broken sleep, sleep disorders. You wind up with chronic fatigue. It sounds like the most difficult thing to describe, I think, to physicians, because you're like, yeah, I'm tired all the time. And they're like, oh, are you taking your vitamins? Are you exercising? Are you eating? (laughs) Yeah, that's great in theory, but if you're the caregiver, primary caregiver for someone else and you're trying to take care of yourself, that changes everything, especially when you've gone from, you know, maybe you plan to be a caregiver for a month after your person came home from nursing facility, like a skilled nursing facility, maybe they did some home health. In the case of COVID, you know, a lot of these patients have really poor activity tolerance after. So they not only have the cognitive challenges, but they also have the poor activity tolerance and balance issues and need physical therapy. They've had muscle atrophy in the hospital. If they've had even a couple of weeks in the hospital, we're not talking months. If you've had months in the hospital, that's even worse because the muscle atrophy happens so quickly. And then Combine that with respiratory problems from COVID, and it's just a recipe kind of for disaster for the patient. And then you, the caregiver as well, because they're already tired from having this, watch this loved one be so ill and not knowing what the future looks like. Now I'm going to take time off work. How is that impacting us financially? And then just the sheer body mechanics, you know, moving a person or assisting someone else's movement is, that's a lot. I know for me today, I I have a patient who, again, another patient I inherited who came for therapy before I got there. He took a break and now he's back. And he got up today out of the waiting room and he walks with a rollator and he just got up too quickly, lost his balance, went forward, went back. And I'm like, oh my God, please don't fall. I don't want to have to answer any questions about what just happened. And I'm not a physical therapist, but I've worked, fortunately I've worked with some really great ones. So I know enough to like how to try to move my body to support him. But if you're doing that day in, day out, morning, noon, and night, that does take some wear and tear on your body, even if you're a, a younger, physically fit, able-bodied, to use my grandmother's terms, able-bodied person. It's still going to take some some tolls on your your body mechanic or your you just your, yeah your body mechanics and your muscle fatigue. Combine that with poor sleep, and you're already tired. Yeah, it's not going to be a a good show. And then we also know that poor sleep and just fatigue in general have some negative impacts on our mental health, which is why trying to, you know, stay active and, you know, all this self-care, self-care, self-care that's been in the media for so long now. And it's great. And I'm a proponent of it, but in real life, sometimes it's very difficult to do that. And so it's difficult to do that just as a human being, 
who only has to be responsible for maybe yourself and your household, but then you've got someone else who's completely dependent on you for care, that changes everything. It makes it more difficult. Very true. And just that self-care takes time. And from a time management perspective, taking care of someone else who you were not expecting to take care of can be very challenging. I would imagine that that is one of the challenges of people caring for others with long-term COVID because unlike some other disease processes, you have a kind of a set of what your expectations are going to be. But it seems like with long COVID, it varies from person to person. So you don't really know what to expect. Well, and then you combine that with someone who maybe has a more traditional, so say you're, you know, you're married and you have more traditional roles, whereas maybe the the female is the provider of meals, maybe takes care of things like grocery shopping and running the kids to 722 activities and doing the parent-teacher conferences and doing all these things. And the, the man has more of the traditional working, maybe doing some lawn care. Because, uh, I mean, people think that that's not true, but it is true because I've seen it, that people have these very defined roles and not everybody has crossed over. Like maybe the man doesn't cook, never did. They've been married for a long, like I'm, I've been married 30 years. My husband can grill some things, but I don't eat meat. So whatever, <laughs> it's not working for me. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's a challenge because I had a pretty major surgery end of 2021. And so we sort of had to plan for that because my expectation wasn't all of a sudden, oh, we are going to be cooking a restaurant quality meal. <laughs> you know, It wasn't going to happen. So, you know, we could plan for it because I knew I was having surgery. But when you have this sudden thing happen to your family and your roles are sort of shifted, whether it's male, female, it doesn't matter. It could be parent, child. It could be child parent, you know, it's, it's just hard to predict and it's a lifestyle change. We talked, we kind of called it the fog, the cognitive deficits. Are you seeing that as typical, a long-term effect of COVID or does it just vary from patient to patient in severity and length and length brings up the fact, have you seen any patients who had long COVID and got over it or completely recovered from long COVID? So back, what's the first part of the question, the mental fog? Yeah. Are you seeing this as a typical symptom of long-term COVID or does it just vary from patient to patient in severity and length? I would say severity and length varies, but from patient to patient, I think most people, the two predominant symptoms are the mental, the cognitive deficits and the physical, just lack of stamina fatigue. I think that's been for me, it's been across the board in, in the population that I see, which again has been varied in age. So it's not just geriatric patients, it's middle-aged. I did have someone that was in their mid-20s, but she also had MS and she didn't survive. So the patients that I've seen who've been referred to me that had the cognitive challenges, again, they haven't fully resolved. Have they improved? Yes, they've improved. But have they gotten back to where they were prior to being sick with COVID? Mm-mm. No, mostly not. Have they gotten pretty good? 80-ish to 90-ish percent? Yeah, a few of them, but a couple of them, not so much. They've, like I said, improved, but not fully recovered, not back to where they were before. So we've talked about the physical and the roles in the household, however those are divided, they need to be changed. How about the financial implications? Yeah, so say the person was the primary breadwinner and now they've got this long COVID and physically and cognitively, they aren't able to go back to work. So the disability process is not easy. It can be a long process. It can be a challenging process, but then also you look at people's age and you think, oh, well, he's only 32. He should be fine. But again, there's people who were very mildly symptomatic who have these long-term effects or even have exacerbations or new onset medical challenges like cardiac symptoms, GI tract issues that they didn't have before. 
just general body system things that they didn't have prior to that they have now, and they haven't been able to resolve those. And it's been impactful for their financial means for their future medical bills say that it was someone who was hospitalized for a long period of time and maybe had an ICU stay. Then yeah, it, they have some financial challenges now because they've got these medical bills that they weren't anticipating and maybe they even didn't have insurance coverage. Like, you know, my in-laws are, they're on Medicare because of their age, but then they also have a supplemental policy for their Medicare that covers pretty much anything that Medicare doesn't. And so we see some patients have prepared that way, but then we've got younger patients who do the bare minimum when it comes to insurance because the premiums are so high and they aren't chronically ill and they really don't have to go see the doctor for a lot of other things. So they just don't want to have that cumbersome, huge payment every month that impacts the rest of their financial life. And so they don't have the best insurance coverage or even the people who lack a decent insurance policy through their employer. Maybe they're on the marketplace for insurance and that's dependent on what they selected, maybe lower costs, lower coverage. So that's a financial impact. And then if someone's unable to return to work, of course, that's a problem or a financial concern. I think the difference between COVID and what we would expect to see in most illnesses is that it's just not selective as far as age group. And again, it's hard to say that too, because in relation to illnesses like cancer, things like stroke, there is no age, there is no time frame. And so it's sort of become this new disease process along those lines of we don't know what the impacts are going to look like. And it's not selective in age. It's not selective based on what your symptoms look like, how sick you were. Again, we would anticipate the sickest of the sick would have the most longstanding problems but and symptoms, but that's not been across the board. It's been sort of like all over the place, like a roller coaster. So I think that's why I'm very interested to see what the research will show over the course of the next year, because I think it's going to be really impactful in what we do and how we're able to customize what we do to help our patients with their goals and what they want to see happen. I agree. And here's another question from our participants. Are there any correlations of incidence of long-term COVID to one vaccine versus another vaccine or no vaccine? I imagine they don't have that information yet, but what do you know? That would be really good research because I know the ones most everyone that I've seen was at least vaccinated. Two, the three were fully vaccinated and boosted. I was vaccinated and boosted. So yeah, I think that would be a great research study for it. And I'm sure it's being done. There's there's a lot that's not being put out as far as what the research they're doing is specifically, but it's there's multiple studies that are being conducted. So again, you can go on the CDC's website and, and access through their link and see if you could connect with someone who maybe has more information about what particular studies there are, because there's more than there's, there's several being done. Thank you. And here's another question. Renee, are you completely back from COVID and seeing a full caseload or are you working part-time because of the COVID? No, I work part-time because I like to do other things that aren't tied to my job. So like I do a lot of volunteer leadership and I I made a point to when I went, I went part-time actually several years ago so that I could teach at the university level. I could be in a volunteer leadership role that wasn't tied to my paycheck. And then now that I'm able to work through speechtherapypd.com and do some webinars and, and participate in some podcasts and, you know, be on top of research and, and that sort of thing. That's the reason I'm part-time at my primary role was for those reasons. Actually, right now, so our productivity in our health system across the board, no matter what your setting is, is 100%, which is insane. So in acute care, that would be, I worked six to six and a half hours a day. So I would have to have 
15 to 18 units, just depending on how many hours I worked. Now the expectation is I have eight appointments available a day. If I have six appointments in my six hour day, I'm full, but they want me to see eight. So today I saw seven and I had a meeting during my lunch and realized when I got home that I forgot to put no lunch when I clocked out. So I'm a little irritated. So <laughs> answer your question. Well, you're definitely productive. Okay, here's another comment to Renee. Thank you for your service. Oh, you're welcome. I, you know, I love it because again, I mean, this is completely off topic, but I plug this all the time, volunteer leadership. I've gotten to do things via the state organization and the Communication Disorders Foundation that I probably never would have done in my career, even if I'd chosen a manager path through the health system, because they're telling you what you're going to do all the time. And in this route, volunteer leadership, yeah, there's certain things that I was responsible for that was the expectation, but I also got to work on some really cool things that were very important to me, like being on the trauma committee for our state to try to decipher what happens to our trauma patients once they leave the acute care hospital. Because in our state, the trauma patients, they get assigned a trauma number before they're identified as far as their you know, biographical information. And the only thing that was being tracked was mortality. So we didn't know who was going SNF. We didn't know who went long-term care, who went home, who still received outpatient services, who went to IPR. So those are the things that are needed in order to justify building more facilities. So it's really important. So I, that's really important to me. So I'm, I'm glad to be a part of that because it was something I picked, not something that sort of fell into my lap based on my paycheck. So I hope that if you have a passion for something like that, small, big, whatever you think is not significant is significant. So if you feel like you want to be a part of that, start small because that still makes a huge difference. I will say thank you for sharing your perspective on your volunteer leadership. And thank you for encouraging people who are listening to follow their passions for volunteer leadership. So, okay, let's dive back in here. Okay. So what are the treatment options for long-term COVID? As far as from a speech standpoint? Yes. Well, if you want to present in addition to the speech standpoint, you can. Where I'm at right now, because the speech side of the world and the we have a peds clinic too, we're we're new to the the ortho PT that clinic that's been there for about 10, 12 years now. It's been a little bit of a challenge, but I know when I was still in acute care, PT would often come into ICU particularly and help us do things like position patients, not only for dysphagia, just for even cognitive or communication therapy, because it was helpful for both of us to see what their fatigue level looked like, because physical fatigue is going to impact your ability to participate in dysphagia therapy and cognitive or communication therapy as well. So we did a few co-treats that way. I think it would be really helpful to be able to do that in the outpatient setting as well. Just right now, the structure of how our schedules work, I'm scheduled at a 40-minute block. They're every 30 minutes, sometimes 60 for the PTs, depending on what level their patients are at. So it's been a learning curve trying to get support from our management team for that because I'm not sure they fully understand the benefit. But again, a lot of medication management, financial management, strategy use of things like calendars and lists and For some people, meal planning, for others, not so much. Just being able to coordinate those things that we sort of take for granted that we do every day, you know, being able to drive from point A to point B, because I do have some patients who have some mild cognitive challenges, but they're still driving. My one lady doesn't drive at night anymore, but she'll definitely go. She'll go to TJ Maxx. (laughs) She's like the TJ Maxx queen. (laughs) She's always telling me how I went to TJ Maxx. Guess what I found? Because <laughs> I think we're so, we're so lucky and our patients kind of get more of an intimate connection with us and they feel like they can share those things that they do from day to day and, and inject their sense of humor. But always asking your patient, hey, what's important to you? What is it that you want to get from this? 
what daily task are you struggling with right now that I can help you with? Or in the case of someone who may be returning to a place of employment, just like with any other challenge for our cognitive or communication deficit patients, what other challenges are you seeing based on what you do for a living that may be harder for you now? How can we do that? Whether it's setting up some sabotage, maybe creating some barriers so that you can be in a adjacent space and they can't read your nonverbals and you can't cue them physically, but you can hear what they're when they're by themselves, what hear and kind of see what that looks like. Can you do something outside of the box and instead of just looking at their medications and setting up a pill box, maybe saying, okay, you set your pill box up and you went to stand up and you hit it with your elbow and now half of your pills are gone and you're not sure what days are accurate and which ones aren't. What pills do you need to supplement here, here, and here? What do you have correct and what needs to be amended? So setting up, a, you know, we can make it harder. We can make it more complex because, again, those are real life things that I've done that before. I was telling one of my patients today, he, he was sharing how, and this wasn't a COVID patient. This is just someone with a, co- a cognitive challenge. But he was saying that he and his wife have always had a salt and pepper mill, like a grinder, not a shaker. And so he said the other day he was sitting there and he took it and he was like dumping it like he was putting salt. And he's like, why is it? What is And he said, I felt like such an idiot because I knew (laughs) that what I was doing was wrong, but I I had to think it through. So it's sort of like when you're distracted, you're fatigued, you've been sick or you've had a sick child or a sick parent and you got your, like for me, I've got my coffee and I've got my little glass of orange juice. And then I haven't poured either one yet, but I go to put orange juice in the coffee or coffee creamer in my orange. It's the same sort of thing. Anything like that that throws you off is going to just sort of derail the whole thing. So if you're able to recreate that in therapy, I think that's really helpful because it's real life. Thank you. You mentioned one patient was returning to therapy kind of a for a refresher. Are you getting referrals from the doctors or are they self-referred or referred once they're leaving the hospital or referred from primary care? Primary care has been our referral source. I don't think I've had anyone who came home and immediately had a referral for speech. Probably for PT they did. I think before I came on board for the outpatient setting, there were a couple of patients who PT saw and were like, oh, cognitively, they're not really, they're they're having a hard time retaining the directions that they gave them for from a safety standpoint for transfers and things like that. So they recognized the need and and recommended them and contacted the PCP for that. Okay. And uh, here's another question. Did the patients experience word finding or thought formulation deficits not present pre-COVID? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not necessarily word finding. It's more like organizational stuff. The ones, the patients that I'm seeing, like sequencing is a little off problem solving sometimes. There's a couple of people I've had who were perseverative. Sorry, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good word. (laughs) So like they'll tell me a story and then we'll move on and we'll do something else. And then they'll say, hey, I don't think I've told you this before. And then they'll just repeat. And it's, it is very, to me, reminds me a lot of patients with early dementia or, or like mid kind of mid-range dementia where they maybe have had it for a while, but they've morphed into being perseverative. So it's, there's got to be a connection, right? Because it's too similar. And not all of these patients are of an age where you would anticipate that. That's the part I think that's very interesting and unique because it's not necessarily 60 plus, 65 plus. It's late 40s, mid 50s. Um, this again, the one lady mid eighties, mid fifties again, and another like right at 60. So it's sort of all over the place age wise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that is very interesting. All right. We talked a little bit about 
creating barriers and recreating different functional activities at home. Is there anything else you would like to add about therapy and treatment? Sometimes, like for the the lady who has a really hard time with her confidence and just gets really anxious if she anticipates that she may get it wrong. <laughs> One of my colleagues does a, a sort of a true crime solve the mystery box. So she gets these, I can't think of the name of it right off the top of my head, but she gets these, it's a box that she's, it's a subscription she gets on a personal level. And so it's got a detailed suspect's, details of the crime, and you have to solve it based on the clues, the evidence, the interviews with the suspects, and all these other components. And so this particular lady worked for the police department many years ago. And while she wasn't directly involved in prosecution or anything like that, she typed up a lot of the notes. And so she's like, so excited to participate in this is like her she's like a low-key detective <laughs> so she really enjoys it and it takes her a really long time to get through everything even with like moderate cues but the fact that she's engaged in it and she feels like she gets it because it takes her a long time but then she's able to be like oh then it clicks and she's got it and she's so excited about that and so just her having that confidence builder and that ownership has been really cool to see. And then there's another, there's a game that I bought. I actually bought it for my patients with Parkinson's and I'm not Swedish, but it's spelled H-Y-G-G-E. So I don't know if that's his or his or he, I don't know, but it's the, the point is cozy conversation without the anticipation of a wrong answer. And so the participant chooses to have, they give the answer, but then they can choose to have the person asking the question. So that would be me if they want me to answer as well. So it has questions like, what's the longest line you ever waited in and what were you waiting for? So it's very sort of unstructured, but it again, it's a cognitive challenge because they've got to really think that through. Or if you could go on vacation for five days alone, where would you want to go and why? So things like that that are very, you, there's no wrong answer, but it again challenges the patient to really think that through. And then it starts the conversation if they want to hear your answer, because then they have a follow-up question. So it's really that kind of back and forth. But again, anything that's going to stimulate that patient cognitively, that's not a pen and paper task, a lot of the times just takes that pressure away. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And let's touch a little bit about goals. So most of the goals are functional goals centered at getting back to work or daily activities. Are there any points that you want to bring up? Yeah. So most of the time we do an internal and external strategy goal. So it's using internal strategies. So that self-regulation, giving yourself extra time, external strategies would be like using the calendar, setting an alarm, using any kind of, you know, a lot of people aren't, some of my geriatric patients are very probably more technologically savvy than I am. And then some aren't into the technology, but we have quite a few patients that want to use their iPad to have an app as their home exercise program as well, making sure that they're using lists for their groceries. And again, it's it's very similar to anything that you've done with a cognitively challenged patient, but making it so it's patient-centered and it's something that they're invested in. They're not going to buy in if they're not invested in it and it doesn't matter to them. So if you want to give them four walk worksheets, they're going to probably be like, I don't get the point. <laughs> I don't get the point of filling in two blank letters to spell a word because I don't know how that's going to help me when I go home and I want to work my remote control that I can't figure out how to work anymore. So we have actually a little broken remote control and we've used that because we had a patient that that was, he wanted to go home and he's retired and his goal was to be independent watching TV. So we helped him figure out how to use his remote control. Oh, that's great. But so many remote controls are so different. Right. (laughs) I know I have two right now. I'm like, I don't know which, what am I doing? Why aren't they the same? (laughs) Well, even the, in the grocery store, the same thing. I wish I had invented a universal place that you put your credit card because 
they're all different. They ask you 14 questions and you're like, I don't know. I just want my food. <laughs> exactly. I'm at Target. I bought too much on clearance. Stop asking me questions. <laughs> I'm trying to be out of here. <laughs> I know the, the worst is when you pay with cash and they still want some information like, no, no. All right. So we were planning on talking about case studies at this point, and we just have like a couple minutes, but you've talked about case studies throughout, but did you have one case study in mind that you wanted to mention? Yeah. I think the lady that I talked about already would, would have been the one just because she's been there a long term. She did take like a three month break and, and she's still, She's again, she's better, but she still has her off days and she has her days where she'll come in and I'll say, how are you today? Man, it was a rough start this morning. I just, I couldn't even figure out how to scramble my eggs. And it's just, you never know what you're going to get with her. And it's just, I want to see the research because it's so much like early dementia. It's mind boggling to me. And I hope someone is working on that because from a scientific standpoint, I think that's going to be very impactful. Have you seen anything about differential diagnosis, whether it is early dementia or? Not yet. Okay. Okay. Yeah. A lot more research has been geared towards looking at impacts on healthcare workers, specifically physicians and nurses. There's not a lot that includes the impacts on speech language pathologists as caregivers in the acute setting or even in the outpatient setting. They're just, it hasn't happened yet. I'm sure it's in the works, but like with anything with research, you know, it takes time and this being so novel and new at the time when it started and everybody just sort of freaking out from everything that happened from sickness to social isolation. And now we're dealing with the economy and it's just the whole thing has been crazy. It has been a crazy couple of years, that's for sure. All right. Well, we are just about out of time. Do you have any upcoming projects you'd like to share? I'm getting ready to submit some things. Anybody wants to, fingers crossed, I'm going to submit a caregiver burnout and stress paper to ASHA. So hopefully they like it. <laughs> I got double rejected last year. So now it's become sort of my mission to present at least one time in my lifetime at ASHA. So I have two things that I want to submit. So that's one thing. And then expanding the, I did a caregiver webinar last year that included an interview with my father-in-law and I want to sort of revisit that and the COVID long-term stuff I want to keep an eye on and maybe by the end of the year, hopefully, if there's good research out there, be able to do an update on that. Everything else right now, I've got I've got a list on my planner and have to go look. You always have something up your sleeve. And then, of course, you are moderating the adult topics on the speechtherapypd.com SLP hub. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So every week I post either an article, a question, or just sort of a food for thought kind of thing. So we really want to encourage people to comment, ask questions. Certainly if there's something that you want to see more of and you want to post that on the SLP Pub, please do, because that would be super helpful. I'm sort of going off of topics right now that my colleagues and I talk about or things that I'm interested in. So yeah, if you have something you want to comment on or you have a question about something, please feel free to post that because I would love to brainstorm and talk through things with people. It's just such a great way to learn. And I'm I'm very grateful to be a part of that. Well, likewise. And that's also a great place to, if you would like a topic for Keys for SLPs, you could always put it there too, because that is where the adult topics are posted. So All right. One more question. Tell us a little bit about the award that you won this year, or did you win it or you were honored with it? I'm not sure what my exact verbiage should be, but anyway, tell us about your award. Okay. So back in December, I was notified. So I was a graduate of Old Dominion University in in Norfolk and every year. So the Darden College of Education and Professional Studies is where the CSD program is located, but there's six divisions total, and I don't know all of them. There's like a business one and some other stuff, special ed, some teaching. Anyway, there's six divisions, and for the first time this year, all six recipients, from one from each division, were female. So that was female power. That was really cool to be a part of. Exciting. 
So what happened was I was nominated by my former professors, which is incredibly astounding to me still that they nominated me out of 42,000 people that have come through the program. So I was very honored. I was very shocked. I was very humble. I was very nervous. I thought I was going to throw up that day <laughs> because I did have to go speak to students, which I mean, I've spoken to students before, but for some reason, when it's your alma mater and your former professors and your program director there, it's like, <laughs> so it was, I was incredibly honored, but it's just a, a way of honoring someone from the college and recognizing their leadership, their contributions back to the field. And that's pretty much the, summary of of that so I was very 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 honored to have that because I am the last one our CSD program is going to move to the College of Health Sciences this summer I don't know if that's public knowledge but we've all been talking about it so it's pretty cool because I'm it I'm the last one. Oh wow wow so well congratulations that was well deserved and Thank I'm you. so happy Appreciate for that. you Thank you for all your contributions to our field and to speechtherapypd.com and to Keys for SLPs. We, we really appreciate all you do. So thank you, everyone, and we'll see you soon. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs for this episode and more. Thanks for your positive reviews and support. I would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. Keep up the good work.